I'm Laura Bowler and I'm a composer vocalist. I'm going to be talking about The Blue Woman, my new opera which is premiering on July the 6th at the Royal Opera House Limbury Theatre running till the 11th of July and you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. And dare I say this as the opening question, you're also <clears throat> uh, the composer, a living composer who wears the best glasses. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. I think I'm just reminded looking through the promotional material that I have you and also you in real life. You have fantastic glasses. I I am a little bit of a glasses fiend. I have about six pairs. Okay. So yes, yeah. Do they correct vision? Yes, they do. Yeah, they're not just they're not just a fashion statement, although they clearly are also a fashion statement. But but were they deliberate? Obviously, they're a deliberate choice. You wouldn't have just randomly chosen them. But they are they they're great. Yeah, How I did think you come by them. Um, I, I can't even remember. It was probably something like Instagram or something. I came by them. It's years ago, but um, anything that's kind of like super big and bold that just makes people focus on that rather than anything else. <laughs> it's a distraction. Is it's that distraction what you're saying? Tool. <laughs> Wow, I also get the impression that nobody else has said that to you before. Um, no, apart from Collie's. Collie's comments on my glasses a lot. Uh, what, mostly positive? Nice. Yeah, always positive. Right. Yeah, okay. And there are a few other people. Like Elaine Michener's also got great glasses, right. actually. Yeah, so I there are think it's important them. to have a calling card. I'm, yeah. And I'm being genuine, I'm being serious yeah, yeah, yeah. about this. I think it's, in order to gain the cut through, one needs to have a distinctive look. Yeah, and I you think. have that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, Elaine's got good ones. And also Larry Goes, another composer. He has also got a great selection of glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a blog post coming on. <laughs> Composers and their glasses. Um, tell me why you do what you do. Why I do what I do? Yeah. Talk about a big question. Hey, oh, my goodness. with the okay. big ones and then they get easier. Uh, why do I do what I do? Well, I write music because... Uh, it's the thing that I learned how to do. It's the thing that I enjoy doing. Sometimes I think all composers also hate it. We go through those periods. But I do love it. But actually, I write the music that I write because I feel just really, really deeply passionate and also privileged to be in the position I am in. And I want to use the tools and skills that I've got to try and provoke dialogue about things that maybe people find difficult to talk about or things that I think maybe people should be talking about. Um, and it's just, it's a means to communicate and create conversation for me. Hold and on. they're subjects which you don't shy away from. I mean, I get the impression that you are probably drawn to the bigger the issue, the more challenging the conversation, you want to be there. Yeah, I think that's, that I mean, yeah, no, no, I think that's fair. I think it's also, like, I only ever write about things I care about. I think that's really important. I mean, I, you know, I would say that I'm pretty empathetic to most things, but things that I feel really deeply about. So, obviously, I write a lot of work about the climate crisis. And each time I write something, I learn more about the climate crisis. And I also learn more about how to make work about it. Because the first project that I did centred around it was a piece called Antarctica. And I sailed to Antarctica for that piece on a tall ship, as you do. Yeah, Yeah, which was an amazing experience, obviously. And it was very bold. And and rigorous, I would suggest. Rigorous. Rigorous research. Yes, exactly. Um, And, yeah, that's... I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to, to travel there, to sail there, was to 
to have the very kind of bodily visceral experience of the location like that's a really important part of my practice I think it's probably because I'm a performer as well and um, but what like although my intentions were to kind of bring like Antarctica back and through this kind of audio diary as well that was part of the piece the it didn't have like quite the political impact that I wanted it to like it was still it communicated but it didn't quite have the communication that I wanted and then I kind of scaled down and wrote a piece called Wicked Problems which is a setting of Timothy Morton's text from his book uh, Dark Ecology and that piece was like the total opposite in that it was you know the text is quite uh, dry it's not emotional it's not personal and it's also super scaled back. It's just two people can do it. They can go anywhere and do it. It doesn't cost a lot. It's also not carbon heavy, all of those things. And I think that that piece is successful in some ways, but does it create the dialogue I want to create? I think people talk about the music more than the subject with that piece. <laughs> frustration <laughs> when answering the first question. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, and then obviously the... The, the most recent pieces, I think, have been more successful in trying to marry both creating interesting art, but also, at the same time, provoking dialogue. And I think that's the balance that I'm always trying to find and always learning. Like, you make mistakes. I try to take lots of risks in my work, um, just because that's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me on my toes. Um, I'm interested in how you... This is what I don't quite get, that if you're working on something that doesn't necessarily have a tangible end, mm-hmm. how is it that you can definitively say at some point that hasn't had the political impact I'd hoped when surely this work is ongoing? It's, it's, it's still, it can still be performed. It can still potentially yet have, Where do you yeah. draw the line? When do you decide, okay, that hasn't, that hasn't quite landed? I, mean, I know you could argue, you know, in terms of climate change, the message hasn't landed more yeah, broadly. Probably. But do you, do you, as a creative, how do you, how, when do you define the time and when do you go, that's now finished? I think I'm quite... Um, I think one of the things that I've found that's a little bit different about the way that I approach my work to some of my colleagues and some of my close friends who are composers is that once I've done something, that's it. I'm, like, I'm not necessarily a composer that's constantly seeking like repeat performances of old works. I'm constantly looking forward to the next thing. Um, so I think, although it's obviously it's absolutely joyous when someone wants to do something again, that's never my driving force. Uh, so I think for me, as soon as it's, as soon as, I've got to say, I do find that slightly odd. Yeah, no, I know it is slightly <laughs> odd. Because I sort of think, as a as a punter, I think, well, if I if I've seen one of your works premiered in one location and then I see it on the bill at another location a year later, I think there's something in that. Do, do you see what yeah, I mean? so yeah. Actually, the repeat performance as a punter, I think, adds credibility to the work. Yeah, I suppose it. Well, yeah, of course. It's not significantly. <laughs> no, no, I think it does. Obviously, it does. You know, it's wonderful if people want to do it again. But I think uh, there's something about. Yeah, I think it's that I try not to look backwards too much. Basically, I just constantly try to. I've got this really insatiable, like, need to create work constantly non-stop <laughs> so obviously my husband really loves that <laughs> that sounds like a really healthy basis for a relationship <laughs> um but 
Yeah, so I think what happens for me, and it's a very personal thing when I say, like, I don't think it quite worked. It's not necessarily for, you know, on a wider scale, there's no way of really measuring some of the things that I'm talking about. You know, if one person goes away from a performance that's a centre around the climate crisis and they reflect and have a dialogue with someone else that maybe makes them think a bit more about it, in some ways you could argue that that's a success, yeah. even if one yeah. person leaves and, do, and does that. And I'm sure that is the case. Um, but I think it's just about that, you know, the self-critical uh, aspect of it where I can see what's missing. Where does a composer go to for moral support? Who does a composer go to for moral support? That's a question that's suddenly, suddenly come to mind. I know where I go to because there are work-related support systems. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Employees, employee assistance programme, coaching, therapy, that kind of thing. Where does, a, where does a composer go to for that kind of support? Or are you just like a self-regulating human being? Um, no, I think I think all of us have got some sort of either mentors or colleagues that we really, really trust. And so there's those few colleagues where you have that relationship where you can go, so how bad was it? <laughs> and they'll be like, okay, let's go for coffee. Or if it's, or if it's shall we go for gin, then it's really bad. So, so just how bad something is, it depends on what the drink and whether you're meeting up in real life. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. If it's, you know, if it's text messages, it's like, oh, it's probably fine. Right, but, you know, if it's, if, it's a, if it's an in-person and it's involving alcohol, then almost wow. certainly. Has that happened recently? Uh, no, no, not oh, recently, no, thankfully, okay, so it's good. Fine, fine. <laughs> thankfully okay. not. Um, so tell me about, first of all, we'll talk about the thing at the Lindbury. Tell me about House's Slide. Yeah, so House's Slide was an, a, yeah, a truly amazing project to work on. It was a huge challenge compositionally as well because essentially we started off with these three questions that we posed to the public um, that were centred around their feelings and thoughts around climate change, that they were devised with a climate psychologist to kind of not be too leading, etc, etc. Um, and then Cordelia Lynn, this amazing playwright and librettist, she then took all of the responses and turned them into this structure that followed kind of the structure of climate grief, so to speak, the different stages. And what was what the hardest thing about the project was, when I was listening to all of these responses, I just kept thinking, what on earth can I add as a composer? Like, what, like how, do, how do I choose what note to go with this? It's so, it's so big, and also some of the responses were so personal. At what point in the project did you, did you think that? Was that right at the beginning? Yeah, it was right at the beginning. As I mean, soon as have you read as Cordelia's program note in the old professional yeah. program? <laughs> she like, felt this overwhelming responsibility yeah. to provide you with stuff that meant that you could write. And what you're telling me is, I found it really difficult. I didn't know what yeah, to do. yeah, yeah. And and she and she did she did an amazing job. And there were sections in it where she, you know, I could tell that she'd listened to my earlier work and the way that I write for the voice particularly, and she'd really taken that into account in the way she structured some of the text, which was amazing. Um, but there's, you know, the same weight that Cordelia felt, I also felt to all the people that had taken the time to respond. And so, like, the piece uh, starts with very, very minimal uh, sound world from the ensemble. And in my head, what I was trying to do was essentially all the physical gestures that they do and the breath sounds. And also they do this gesture on the string instruments that creates, like, a, a noise-based breath sound as well. Is They were all just magnifying the breathing of the people in the in the tape parts and I just magnified their breath and eventually 
the ensemble starts to become more and more tangible, more in focus. And the idea essentially, was for the, especially for the first part of the piece, was that the ensemble were like a representation of the climate crisis in that they are very present, they are there, but, you know, it, especially living in the UK, can, is it that tangible for us to understand in a day-to-day living? And so it's something that we can we know about, but it's kind of, there's something, you know, that can't be touched about it, and it's quite difficult to comprehend. And so the ensemble function in that way in the first section in that it's, you know, they're there, we don't really understand what their function is at first, and eventually they start to completely take over the voices. And so that, you know, in reality, that is essentially what the climate crisis is heading towards. <laughs> and what, uh, at what point did the bicycles come become involved? <laughs> bikes. I <laughs> <laughs> um, love the bikes. Uh, the bikes became involved be- before we did all the questions and everything. Okay. Um, essentially, we were trying to find a way. So when Katie came on board... Um, Katie Mitchell, the director, she uh, and I talked about how we can, a couple of things, one because she knew physicality and performance was a very important thing for me, like I, you know, physical gesture in instrumental writing is really important but also, you know, as a performer I've trained to box and things like that as part of a performance piece and so it's, it's always at the heart of my work so that was one thing that we were thinking about but also how do we really make a provocation to the industry as well? Uh, about you know actually what it is to put on a concert and just the carbon footprint of putting on a concert and so we thought well bikes <laughs> bikes are a good way to do that and also the visual element and this sense of you know the ensemble of cyclists you know they are the uh, they are kind of representative of the universal need for a, a global effort uh, in terms of uh, tackling the climate crisis. And I found it made a very, very bold statement before anything else had happened. Because uh, being present in the same room is... This is going to sound really weird, but being present in the same room, there's so many cyclists who aren't going anywhere and we're also in a performance space and they're cyclists and also the, the rest of the band are in the dark and actually this is how much energy we need just to light Mm. that yeah as someone who loves going to concerts I suddenly felt enormous guilt but which is not necessarily something that wants to experience well, wants to experience at a concert but at the same time it did make me think um, and also dare I say it it all has also has great cuts through in a press release because that's because <laughs> yeah. that's one of the reasons that I wanted to wanted to talk to you because seeing it in the press release in the run-up to the premiere uh, in South Bank here yeah, South last Bank, yeah. year, that made me go. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose Are you it aware is. Aware of that stuff, or, um, or does that stuff sort of? I think I'm less aware of it. Uh, I tend, like, I never choose things just because I think that they will. I'm not suggesting for No, I know, but I'm sure people do think that sometimes. So yeah. it's you know, it's it's never the. Like, well, there is an element in order to convey the message. It has to draw people in. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, I did learn a lesson from the piece that I commissioned a piece from the composer Jennifer Walsh years ago, the boxing piece, where I had to train as a boxer, like, full-time, so that I looked convincing as a professional boxer. Otherwise, it totally undermined this idea right. of women's boxing. Right. Um, and what was interesting is, because of that, because of the, like, the narrative around the performance, the audience was kind of half contemporary music enthusiasts and half boxing people. 
which was such a fascinating wow. thing because wow, the marketing department were jumping up and down. And yeah, so it's just really fascinating. And so I think there is something joyous about when two communities collide in that sense. And I think with obviously with uh, Houses Slide, because I mean, cycling is such a uh, significant part of many people's lives, but also the relationship that has to the climate crisis and the various choices that people make in their day-to-day lives, especially in a city in terms of travel. Um, I think that that then made this wonderful in- wonderful intersection of different communities as they part must, of the audience. Those cyclists must have been exhausted. I mean, it's not a short work, is it? They were pedalling for a long time. <laughs> but the rehearsals are the real thing because, like, because obviously they kept they're cycling for like hours. Yeah. You know, in the rehearsals, they're and all I remember. Quite thin. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember in the first, what was really amazing, actually, just as an experience, in the first rehearsals that we did uh, for the Southbank Centre perform you know being in a rehearsal where the musicians are like focusing on these hyper details of the sound yeah. and things like this and there's like 17 cyclists at the gym essentially <laughs> yes. behind you know sweating <laughs> drinking their water listening to music having a chat and it was just and it was this wonderful kind it totally changed the atmosphere of the rehearsal room and it was actually so much more joyous like there was less kind of you know, people being a little bit grumpy about various things or whatever. It was much more, there was much more this sense of kind of camaraderie of just, we've got to make this happen no matter what. And it was, that was kind of a wonderful thing that I'd never experienced before. I imagine there was less reverence. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think inevitably having, you know, 17 people working out in the rehearsal space <laughs> does that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, the juxtaposition is not lost on me. Um, <laughs> uh, when you look at House of Slide, then, given what you told me unwittingly about Antarctica, this is what happens. Um, <clears throat> do you feel as though the political message has landed with, with House of Slide, or is there something that you're slightly dissatisfied with that? No, I'm actually, I'm really, it's one of my pieces that I'm actually really quite proud of. Right. Like, I feel <laughs> contentment, quite... Contentment, then, I yeah. sense contentment. Content, content right. with, yeah, like... I think there's essentially two pieces of written that I feel that way. <laughs> wow, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> and an RPS win. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I feel there's lots of aspects of it and I think it's quite a multi-layered work in terms of its communication. Uh, and I think that's a really strong aspect of it. I think if there was anything that I would like to add to it, it would be... Because I really, really tried in when we were putting the questions out to the public, I sent them to as many people I knew across the globe. Um, I would like to get a more diverse range of experience in terms of the responses to the questions. Uh, that was that's the the only thing that I think I would like to alter if I was ever to kind of Is revise it, a work it in that any way. Would be um, susceptible to not susceptible. That's not the right word. But is it a work which could be reworked with other voices? Or is that the work done? Well, oh. without without saying, I can't say too much. Are you but about to provide an announcement? <laughs> no, I'm not going to provide an announcement because it's not official yet. Right. But the answer to that question is yes, it is a work that can be reworked. It is a lot of work to rework it, yes. but it's possible. Uh, and that it is something that we're thinking about doing. How very diplomatically put. <laughs> Uh, in the meantime, however, you're working on a new opera for the Royal Opera House at Lindbergh, the lovely, the darling Lindbergh Theatre. Yeah. Um, it's t- inevitably a tough subject and a necessary yeah. subject. Tell me about the Blue Woman. Yeah, so the Blue Woman's been a project that I've wanted to make for a very long time, like maybe seven, eight years, maybe even longer. I can't even remember now. And it's it 
yeah, it's been the most fascinating experience actually to work on it. Uh, it's a dream come true to obviously have Katie Mitchell directing this opera because she is the absolute perfect director for this work and also I've admired her work for years before she even directed opera like I was an admirer of her theatre direction um, and essentially the work looks at it's a very poetic work in lots of ways it's very experiential in that it kind of very literally takes the idea of the fragmentation the fracturing of the female psyche post-sexual violence and puts that into words and also into the structural form of the work so the work has this quite fragmentary very dynamic quality like shifting spaces all the time um, and so very much the, the structure of it takes you through the the psychological processes that a woman would go through in uh, this scenario or might go through and so obviously there's a huge amount of research that's gone into the work um, and through various means, both through my own reading, Katie's reading, Anna Brettis reading, Laura Lomas. Um, I have an unusually large library on the subject. Right. <laughs> yeah, rigorous research. Rigorous Which research. is, um, you know, not the most happiest of libraries no, to no, own. I, I get but, it. Uh, yeah. but essential when making a work about this, because it's hugely complex and to try and evoke something that is experienced by so many people across the globe and in so many different ways uh, is a really difficult thing to do. Did you, did you find actually that I hadn't realised that you'd been thinking about it or wanting to do it for, for quite so long but I wonder what impact major news stories that, that surface the subject of sexual violence against women, I wonder to what extent those news stories provide you with greater impetus urgency do they sort of you know if the project is not up and running and you want to do it and you hear that story does that create extra pressure do, what um, impact do news stories have on you when you're in that sort of oh my goodness I haven't I've been avoiding the news recently actually in the past month just because uh, working on this opera is enough yeah, no, <laughs> at the moment no, but yeah I'm no it's, it's you're absolutely right it makes a huge impact like uh, you know it's it's devastating a lot of the time when I hear these news stories and although they weren't the impetus for me wanting to write the work they inevitably are also kind of part of the narrative and they yes. are fuel for the desire to make this work and to it's and it's also so it further towards yeah, the work absolutely yeah right. completely and it's also you know it's also a dialogue with the operatic canon in reality because uh, it's not that often that you can go and see one of the canonic operas and it doesn't have a one either a deeply problematic narrative centred around female victimisation in some way or it doesn't in fact stage sexual violence in some way that is either glamorising or minimising. Uh, and so that is an experience that I've been through multiple times watching, you know, and being infuriated by. Uh, is also something that we wanted to challenge by making this work and especially, you know, in in the Royal Opera House as well, in that space. You don't do anything by halves, do you? Really? You just you, you don't want an easy life. You want a challenge. You want you want this to really push you. Yeah, I do. And I think it's because I I feel I feel incredibly lucky to do what I do and so I should push myself. Really. Uh, the other thought that had crossed my mind given the the, the subjects that inspire you is that for me as a punter I go along to a performance 
and I seek to have I seek it to be thought-provoking which is what I imagine you would hope the work would be but then when I come along with a microphone to talk to the person who writes, wrote it I realise that underlying all of that is an assumption that you must have all of the answers so it's kind of weird I wonder whether you experience this weird tension where as a result of creating something about a subject that needs to be talked about mm-hmm. a lot of other people go right so what do you think we should do, so what do, you think come, we on, should do? Yes, come on come on well, I was just writing the music I mean you know I, I don't know whether you experience that yeah no I have experienced that totally like it happened very directly in a post show discussion with the Antarctica piece right. is someone that someone said something like I can't remember it so I'm paraphrasing but it was along the lines of um, uh, so you didn't really offer any new ideas in this for solving the climate crisis and I was just like well I'm a composer not a climate crisis scientist you know like I'm not a specialist in this field what I'm I'm not attempting to offer solutions I'm (laughs) yeah and I think I think like I try not to I mean there are certain subjects where in in my head and I think morally and ethically there is a right and wrong Uh, so for instance with the the blue woman it's very like cut and dry the right and wrong there are other subjects that I touch upon like you know I wrote a piece called FFF that was about kind of the um, our engagement with politics through social media and it's like draws a parallel between that and the fight flight freeze mechanism our primal mechanisms with that and that piece it's it's neither it's not saying that engagement with politics online is a bad thing or a good thing but it's just provoking a dialogue about it like i don't know if i think it's a bad or a good thing but i think it's a really interesting thing to I make we work both about. know it's quite a bad thing <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean i see what you're doing but i think we both know that it's it yeah but uh, whereas like so there are subjects like that where it's a little bit more gray where you have to tackle it in a different way but i think you know for me i feel very strongly about the climate crisis i know there are many climate crisis deniers in the world uh, i know some uh, but like for me it's pretty cut and dry have you become uh, have you been introduced to more as a result of your compositional output um a little actually a little bit like they've come out of the cracks right i wondered if they were bold <laughs> enough to go yeah you know what <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that more have come out of the cracks in terms of people that i didn't know their viewpoints on this and made assumptions i think and and how have you managed that relationship um through my my lawyer through my lawyer no just through talking like I'm very happy like I think it's something that we sometimes maybe forget is a really good way of um, tackling these difficult problems that we face as uh, humanity that actually just talking about things and realising that based on people's experiences they might have a different perspective even if you feel that perspective is wrong it must be grounded in something from their perspective and just being able to empathize and find a way to have a meaningful conversation about it that isn't just a us and them scenario um what are you most proud of in terms of the blue woman this is something that you've wanted to work on for a long time you've obviously gone through a lot to make it what what will make you beam Oh, what am I most proud of? I don't know, it's just bloody happening. <laughs> <laughs> this is a promotional piece, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, 
Uh, one of my this most is a question that you feel uncomfortable answering. It is, yeah. Which is possibly why I think it's okay to say after the RPS award you didn't stick around, you just went. Yeah, Because I you think don't so. want to be put on the spot. Um, it's not that I don't like being put up on the spot, but pride is quite a tricky word, I think, for me. Like, I don't very often feel pride. Actually. Is that because pride might lead to immodesty? Uh, possibly. If we both agree that pride doesn't agree lead to immodesty, <laughs> would you consider having another run of the quest? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> what will I be most proud of? I think, actually, the thing that I'm most uh, proud of at the moment with the work is that we've brought together an incredible group of creatives. Uh, it's almost an entirely female creative team, not an entirely female creative team and just being in the room with so many phenomenal women has been the most like you know fascinating experience and a wonderful opportunity for me to learn as well from them and for us to learn from each other and to also you know to put a work on like this against some of the things that are programmed elsewhere across the country in opera is is a huge statement I think and hopefully it will provoke uh, people to question their decisions in terms of directing certain pieces in certain ways. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? You look completely bowled over by I that. really love lavender chocolate. Really? <laughs> I do. I think that sounds vile. <laughs> I have to tell you. I can say that now because the interview is effectively over. Lavender chocolate? Why would you even consider that? Oh, it's just so good. I just love lavender. Lavender dark chocolate. Yeah, it's great. Does, la does lavender not remind you of elderly parents? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, no it doesn't. 